0: This is The Bittersweet Life, a show for expats, former expats, travel lovers, and people who dream about moving far away someday. I'm Katie Sewell, a recent repatriate to Seattle in the United States after a year in Rome. My co-host is Tiffany Parks, an expat who spent the last 10 years in Rome. If you're new to the show, I encourage you to join us for the whole journey by beginning with episode one. If you're really interested in today's theme, however, back up to the beginning afterwards. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. And today we talk a little bit more about repatriation and the difficulties thereof, the dark side of repatriating. In episode 64, just a couple episodes ago, we called Repat. We spoke with Deborah Bruno, who was a journalist and writer for the Wall Street Journal's expat blog, about her article Repatriation Blues, Expats Struggle with the Dark Side of Coming Home. If you haven't heard that one, go back. Uh, In that article, though, she cited a woman named Maria Foley, who is a writer and former expat behind a blog called IWasAnExpatWife.com. And Maria had conducted a survey of former expats to try to get a picture of what experiences and feelings they were going through when they repatriated to their birth country. And I thought that would be pretty interesting to know what she found. Absolutely. So I invited her on the show to talk about it, asking her first about her background with overseas living.
1: When I was 19, I got kind of bored and I thought, hey, you know what would be really fun? It would be to go to France as an au pair. And when you're 19 and you have thoughts like that, you know, you don't really have to sit down and analyze it. You just do it. And so I did. so at 19, I found myself in in Normandy looking after a four-year-old and a six-year-old. So I had no idea what I was doing on that front. Uh, my language was, you know, high school French level, although it did get much, much better. And uh, it was quite difficult, but I did it. I survived it. I, I came back. Uh, I wasn't there quite a year. It turned out to be a great learning experience, although not quite the the joyous, fun, happy time I had anticipated. Then a couple years later, having learned absolutely nothing from that experience, I decided to do the same thing. And, hey, wouldn't it be fun to live in Australia for a while? So um, I did that. Fortunately, I have an aunt and uncle who live in Sydney and very kindly agreed to take me in for a year. And I worked for a while. and I backpacked a while and I, I, you know, I made some friends and I did have a lot of fun. And and then, you know, again, moved back home and had to struggle through the whole reentry thing, although I didn't have any kind of understanding of what I was going through at that time. And then this final time was completely different because, of course, here I am all grown up and I've got these two kids. My, my daughters were uh, six and eight when we moved abroad. And initially I agreed to do it only because it was supposed to be for a year. And I thought, what a great adventure for the girls at that age. You know, this, this could be fun. And then, you know, how it happens a year turned into two years, turned into three years, turned into another assignment that lasted two years. So five years after we, we left Canada, thinking that we'd be back the following year, we did finally home. So that was for my husband's job that time. There was no whim on my part. It was, hey, let's move to Singapore. No, it was for a job. It was for a very grown-up
0: reason that time. What was your response when he first came to you and said, we could be moving to Singapore?
1: Well, my first response was when he came to me a few years before that and said, hey, we could be moving to Hong Kong. And I said, just don't even think about it. Like My children were much, much younger. I had the benefit of my parents and my in-laws living quite close by and being very hands-on, I didn't want to blow that up. You know, it was all working very well. I didn't feel that I had the, I guess the reserves of strength at that time that I thought it would take to move to Hong Kong, which sounded like a very foreign place, you know, like more than I was capable of handling. And then a few years later when he came around with the idea that maybe we could move to Singapore, I don't know what the shift was internally. It suddenly sounded like a really great idea let's do something completely different. I think by that time, you know, I was starting to feel a little bit restless um, in myself. I, I was looking for something more and not quite sure what that more could possibly be. And then this sort of felt like, you know, a gift from the gods out of the sky. And I thought, yeah, you know what, we could do that for a year. It wouldn't kill us to try something different for a year.
0: So away we went. And once it became clear that it was going to be much longer than a year, did you, were you fully engaged in being over there at that point? Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh.
1: Yeah, I lobbied hard at that point to stay longer. We had a wonderful time in Singapore, and, and uh, my children adapted beautifully. They made some great lifelong friends. We traveled a lot. You know how it is. You know, you go, you travel, you experience all these new things, and you start to develop. It's almost, it's almost addictive. You know, you start to develop this Jones for another experience, another adventure, um, and so it kind of fed off itself. and uh, And we, I think my husband would have stayed there forever. Um, and the girls were certainly very happy to do so. But then I started to get the kind of restlessness again because then reality sets in and we were so far away from our families. You know, it was, it was 12 hours or 13 hours, depending on the time of year. And it's not like we could pop in for a weekend visit or what, you know, it just, it's, I started to overthink it, I think is what actually happened. And so then uh, my husband said, well, fine, there's a, a job offer in North Carolina or we could go to France. And I thought, oh are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Completely
1: forgetting that I wasn't entirely in love with the whole experience when I'd done it as a teenager. But what I was thinking was, this would be great for my daughters, you know, this would be great to learn a new language and to experience living it in yet another culture. And and it's only, you know, a six-hour flight away from, from family back in Canada. So then you moved on to France. We did indeed. And yeah. you were there for how long? We were there for two years. Uh, it was um, a, a bit of a it wasn't quite this completely sunny experience that we had in Singapore, and the reason, part of the reason that we decided to come home is that we were living in Bordeaux, which has its own charms, don't get me wrong. It was, that was a fantastic experience, but in terms of an expat community, there really was nothing there, which in itself wouldn't be a problem. It, you know, it encouraged us to make, to make friends with, with the local people. The problem was with schools. My children's French was not good enough for them to be streamed into the local schooling system, and so we had one option for an international school, and it was almost like you know you read about the one the one room schoolhouses you know of many years ago. It was such a small school that they had 60 I think at that time 63 students, uh, ranging from preschool age to high school age. Oh wow! One of my daughters, there were no kids there her age at all. <laughs> at that sort of pre age, it's a little bit awkward anyway, it's a little bit difficult, there's a lot going on and the fact that she didn't really gel with anybody when we were there strongly influenced us to, to think about
0: coming back home. Now they were pretty young when you left so what was coming back home like for them?
1: When we left Canada they didn't want to go and then when we left Singapore they didn't want to go and when we left France they didn't want to go because You know, at each stage, that was their life, and and they had made a life for themselves, and they weren't that keen to change it. And so coming home, which, of course, we all thought would be so very easy, what I found was that they were very – they isolated themselves. They did have friends. I mean, we were home every summer for five years, so it's not like they didn't know anybody. They maintained a lot of those friendships, but they chose not to pursue them. And I think it was because there was a permanency now attached to the fact that we were back in Canada. It wasn't just, you know, a, a four or five or six week home visit. This was actually going to be our lives. They kind of held back from taking that step. But kids being kids, you know, by the time the second week of school, it was like they'd never left. And they had their old friends, they made new friends. It's not that they weren't changed because they were, I believe, fundamentally changed by their time abroad, but they managed to to integrate a lot faster than their mother, for example.
0: Well, it brings up an interesting point, even though you ended up staying overseas for an, much longer than you were thinking, that whole time it had that temporary feeling. Is that right? It did, kind
1: of. You know, it was, um, I, and we we made sure that the children never lost the sense of being Canadian. So we celebrated Canada Day and we always embraced the the, the, the cultures that we lived in. We got involved in, in the national holidays. We, we tried very much to make their lives a part of our lives. But I also wanted to make it clear that you're going to be bicultural or multicultural but this is where you're from. We kind of pushed that. Coming home every summer was a was a conscious decision. I wanted them to see not just their family and their friends, but I wanted them to see where they came from and, and where they, they might end up deciding that they belonged. I always knew that we were going to come back eventually. They didn't necessarily think that way because, of course, they, they're children and they kind of live in the moment and they, they were putting down roots in a way that I wasn't necessarily. So for me, it was always a temporary thing. For them,
0: maybe not so much. That makes it an interesting thing that when you actually get home, it's you that has the harder time with the transition than them. Oh, you know what? You know what's ironic about it, too, is I'm the one who had already done this, you know, a couple of times
1: before. You would think that I would, that I would have figured it out. And in fact, I had been reading as much as I could about re-entry. And what makes it even more embarrassing <laughs> is that when I was in France, I started a master's degree in intercultural communication and was was reading about reentry as much as i could and i with i don't know if you could call it arrogance or just plain stupidity but i didn't think that it applied to me i thought you know i was reading all these doom and gloom stories about people who come back home and they can't cope and they can't settle and blah 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 and i'm thinking Okay, well, that's for people who've lived, you know, overseas for twenty years, and you know, they've they've totally gone native, and then they come, you know, back to their passport country, and of course, they can't. That doesn't make any sense. But me, I've been gone five years. That's nothing, and I was back home for a month every summer, and you know, I kind of kept up with my contacts back there. I kept up with what was going on, and I don't feel, I don't feel at all that I went native, um, and so of course, it's going to be just like slipping back into the life that you had before. Which is a total crock, because I don't think that ever happens for anybody.
0: you did this survey, you put out a repatriation survey mm-hmm. and it looks like you were targeting the accompanying spouse. initially, I was
1: because that was my experience, and I also I find that other groups have stronger support systems in place for them. So for example, I mean, if you're going away, if you're the the expatriate who who's got the job, you've got structure around you when you're there on assignment and you've got structure when you come back. You might not have the, the warm and fuzzies, I mean m- most companies kind of ignore the fact that managers might need some support when they come home, but there is, there is structure around you. Missionary families for example, the missionary sector does for the most part a fantastic job of taking care of their people when they come home and trying to reintegrate them into their home culture. Um, But it seems to me that the spouses are the ones who are always left out in the cold. They're always the ones who have to sort things out for themselves. You know, when you move to a new country, your kids go to school. That's what they did back home. They went to school, and it might not be the same school, but there's still that structure in place for them. Your partner, he'll go to work every day, which is what he was doing anyway, or she, and it's in many many cases the same parent company, and so The corporate culture is the same. So there's not a huge amount of extra work that they have to do. But the poor spouse, you know, left to their own devices and trying to figure out how to grocery shop and how to take money out of the bank and how to get around this new place. That applies when we come home, too, is we're still the ones who are left trying to figure everything out. So initially, I did want the book to be for them. And what was happening was I was getting these survey responses that were saying, I know you don't want to hear from me because I'm a student, I'm a missionary, I'm in the military, I'm whatever. And you're looking specifically at the sort of the spouses of, for the most part, the corporate expatriates. But I have a story to tell too. And so I thought, oh, what the hell, it's everybody's story. You know, everybody's invited to this party. Let's just... Let's just open up the doors and let everybody in. Because they all had interesting things to say. They all had valid experiences. They all had something that we could learn from. I ended up not wanting to limit myself with such a strong and narrow focus, but just sort of making it a soup and taking a little something from everybody.
0: Can you share one thing that you discovered from that survey?
1: I asked a question about identity because I'm very interested in this idea of I find that what happens is when people go abroad, their identity changes in sort of an additive way. There's something that is added to their identity. So a lot of times that the very act of being an expat becomes a big part of their identity. And then when they come back home, a lot of times the identity changes in a subtractive way now you're not maria the expat who goes off and does these exciting things you're maria yeah she used to live in france and singapore but now she's just like us and so i wanted to know if other people felt that that sense of loss that i felt when i came back and had to sort of shed that part of my identity and a lot of people did i mean that was it was a recurring theme throughout all of the surveys but but some people you know, they, maybe they don't feel as sorry for themselves as I do. Maybe, maybe they're a bit stronger. But there was one um, American woman who had repatriated from, I believe it was Finland. And she said, I, I feel that I'm more free to be myself because I've been forced to detach myself from my culture's expectations. And so I thought, well, there's a woman who's taken the strength that she gained from being overseas and packed it with her and brought it back home there's somebody that I could learn something from. And another woman who, and I, it was mostly Americans who responded to my survey, by the way, so it's, it's kind of skewed um, in that sense. This woman was from it was China. And she said, yeah, I'm a warrior. I feel now that I'm capable of just about anything and people perceive that of me. So two women who didn't sort of let the fact that now they're taking a step in what many cases is a step backwards for a lot of people because you've you've done it before and so you're, you're sort of you're giving something up. They refused to lie down and, and give up. They said, no, this has changed me. This has changed me for the better and I'm not going to let the fact that I'm now back home take that away from me.
0: Did that change how you felt at all personally? Yeah, it made me feel
1: like more of a wuss. <laughs>
0: <laughs> because
1: to be honest, I came home and I went into a two-year funk. I thought, oh my, I will never do anything interesting again the interesting part of my life is over for sure. And so what's the point? I guess I'll get out of bed today. But on the other hand, why? And then I look at these women who those two uh, examples were women but I did hear from quite a few men as well. I hear from these, these people who are saying, hell no, you know, I went through this fantastic experience and and it made me something better than I was before. Why should I hide my light? You know, I'm going to go out there and, and just be the the greatest person that I can be and and of course by the time I I read the survey results I was fine I mean I was over my little post uh, expat depression kind of thing and I, I was sort of back up and running but I I did feel a sense of regret that I I wish that I had been able to feel that at the time when I needed it the most
0: but unfortunately it was not to be maybe you don't know but is that certain personality types. I do think it has a lot to do
1: with personality types and you know when you're talking about the big five in personality, I mean there are certain traits that have have been shown to be more successful in terms of expatriating and I would draw a link between those traits and, and repatriating as well, it makes perfect sense to me. The extroverts seem to have an easier time than the introverts and so if you're an introvert like I am you tend to isolate yourself in those kind of situations. And that was one of the big mistakes that I made. I made so many mistakes, but one of the biggest ones was that I isolated myself. So where I should have been going out and meeting new people, and in particular, trying to meet fellow repats, Because only another repatriate is going to really understand what you're going through. Rather than forcing myself to go out and do that, I stayed inside and I kind of brooded a little bit about how my life had changed. And it was, you know, I moved back into the same house and I was driving the same car that that I was living in and driving before I moved away. So it was kind of hard not to feel that there was a regression involved there. But, you know, time is a great healer. And eventually I came to see my time overseas as the gift that it was. Maybe I'll never walk up and down the Great Wall of China again, but I did it. And it was great at the time, and that doesn't mean that I can't do something else equally amazing if I put my mind to it. And it's, it's kind of like a, a mantra. I have to remind myself about that
0: all the time. We did an interview with Deborah Bruno, who wrote the article about the difficulties of repatriating for the Wall Street Journal. And she did the same thing that I did and that you did, which is that we moved home and we moved back into the same location. Once you get this book, Going, are you going to write about that as something that possibly should be avoided that you should at least move into a different kind of place?
1: Well, I don't know, because I have also talked to people and I've written about people who I mean, I call them the pseudo repatriates because they move back to their passport country, but they move maybe to a different city. Mm-hmm. And so for them, there's sort of an added layer of, of complexity to what they're going through because, I mean, I spoke to um, a French woman and she said, it's really difficult because I'm back in France and so I can speak my own language and that's easy. And so I understand kind of the way things operate because it is my national culture, but I've never even visited this city before I don't feel at home here. I don't know anybody and I don't really like the people. The people are a little bit different from the people in my hometown and they do little things a little bit differently, you know, and if you want to go to city hall, you can only go on certain dates or, or whatever her issue was. I mean, I mean, nobody escapes, right? Like I like to say that that reentry is like Alcatraz. Nobody escapes. But it affects us in different ways depending on our circumstances, depending on our personalities, depending on whether we have kids that we're worried about, depending on whether maybe it's our first or second or third time repatriating. There are a lot of variables that go into how you respond to reentry. And I wish that it were because I've tried to find the formula. And maybe a formula, if I dig into the survey results, maybe a a formula will make itself known. But so far, I haven't been able to find it. It's a crapshoot
0: one of the things that you posted on your blog, I was an expat wife, about your survey results was that basically that question, how easy do you think it's going to be to go home? And what did you find over time when people repatriated more than once? I loved it. I mean, you
1: you, it's because it's a it's a bar bar graph, you can see it visually how how it changes with every reentry. So so I asked them, did you think that this re-entry was going to be difficult or easy? And at first, of course, everybody's saying it's going to be so easy. And then I would say, well, and how was it in fact? Was it difficult or was it easy? And it was very difficult. So we have this huge gap between expectation and reality. And what I found interesting was the second time, of course, now they've been through it once. And so they think, aha, so I know what to expect. And so I think it's going to be easier than it was before, although it's not going to be a cakewalk. And then you can see the the graph there is that they're not quite as optimistic as they were before, but there's still, it's a tiny gap. It's almost even now between expectations and reality, but there's still a gap there, you know? And then by the third one, it's like they've given up hope. (laughs) And (laughs) And they're saying, no, I know it is going to be really, really hard. And in fact, you can also see the trend is that it does get a little easier over time so that's the encouraging part as our expectations are sort of beaten into the ground we know that it's not going to be as easy
0: as we had originally thought but it does get a little bit easier over time there are some people who listen to this podcast regularly who have never actually been expats some of them are travelers but others are just people who like the idea of doing it but don't really feel like they would ever do it in reality listening to you talk would make those people think that you're crazy to move overseas <laughs> in multiple times i mean you're just gonna force yourself into one depression after another after another what would be your response to that impression
1: well first of all this is one person's view for me the glass is always almost empty like that's just my personality um i know people who have repatriated before and there's a difficult period and then they get over it so a lot of this has to do with personality type as we mentioned before but also The way that I look at it is anything worth having is worth paying for. Now that I have a little bit of distance from my repatriation experience, I would say that I would do it again because what I gained from living overseas far outweighed the payment that I had to make when I came back. And I also think that what I gained from repatriating was also well worth it because I have a new appreciation of my life here, my country here, and I also found my tribe after I repatriated. I started blogging as a way to work through those uncomfortable feelings that I had and to try and make some sense out of it and to try and make it feel that it was all worth it to me and I found that there's like an online nation of expats and repats out there who who were always there to offer encouragement and support and to make me feel that all the choices that I made along the way were the right choices at the time so yeah I mean parts of it are very difficult but look at any transition there's going to be an element of difficulty because it's an adjustment that you have to make so if you're thinking about moving overseas and it's something that you really want to do I wouldn't be discouraged by the fact that it might be difficult at some point because again, in the end it, it's well worth it
0: well thanks so much for talking to us
1: That's great. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much for asking. You don't often get to talk about it, right? It's it's one of the things that comes up a lot in the survey is that people don't necessarily want to listen to stories about your life overseas. It's one of the things that people find the hardest thing to deal with is that people don't want to listen. You know, as one woman said, an entire decade of my life became irrelevant when I moved home.
0: Why do you think that is? Do you have a sense? There's a sense
1: that you're bragging a little bit. Which is not necessarily the case. I don't know what it is. I had another person say everything I said had to be summed up in a sound bite, so that I could just give people the gist, but they didn't want to engage, and so that's something that um, that is is very hard to deal with when you, uh, an important part of your life is is dismissed out of hand. And so, thank you for letting me talk about an important part of my life and. I really do appreciate that because everybody else has already heard it. I can see their eyes glaze over when I start to talk about it. So (laughs) I can't see your eyes. So whether they're glazing over or not is irrelevant to me right now.
0: My eyes are very perky right now. Very interested. (laughs) (laughs) Perky eyes. I've never heard that before. Yeah, well, no, thank you, Katie. I do appreciate it. So that's Maria Foley, the writer behind the blog, I Was an Expat Wife. I asked her, Tiffany, why she decided to make The title of her blog, Past Tense, I Was an Expat Wife. She said that it was her way of gently closing the door on the expat past that she had already lived. So rather than be like, I am an expat wife, she was trying to process the fact that, no, it was over. And this blog was part of her processing that it was over. It's interesting to hear from someone on the spouse side of it, because we've only talked, as far as I know, with maybe the exception of Cassie, We've only really talked with people who moved abroad of their own volition through their own work or through their own reasoning, whatever that might be. So it's interesting to hear from someone who, although they were definitely very open to the expat experience, it wasn't their choice, it wasn't their story. Obviously, it becomes their story because they are an expat just as much as their spouse is. But like she was saying, they don't have the structure of a job. They don't have a a real purpose, uh, or at least not such a clear purpose. So it was interesting to hear her point of view. It was. And I would have ended the interview there because she made so many interesting points. And it definitely, as you heard, sounds like it comes to a good conclusion. But we kept talking. I still had the tape rolling just because I didn't push stop on the Skype recorder. And she ended up saying more interesting things again. So I decided to include a little more in this episode, particularly her comments on a question I had asked about, are there certain circumstances when repatriation is easier if you're not there as long or if you didn't resonate with the culture that you were living in? You know, like I really liked Italy, but what if I didn't like Italy? Would I feel better about getting home? And here's what she had to say.
1: I honestly do not think that the length of time that you're away is in and of itself a factor in how well you you repatriate because I think a lot of it has to do with how you, well you integrated when you were away. So you know there are some people who never really integrate into the host culture. They they stay in, you know, the expat bubble and do they only hang out with people who speak their language or from their country and they they may adopt sort of the superficial cultural markers of that culture you know they might dress the way the people dress or they you know they eat the food or whatever but they don't you know are you familiar with the iceberg model of culture the iceberg model is like an iceberg you know when people think of culture they think of things like food and language and and dress and national holidays But those things are really just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to culture. And underneath the surface, that's where the massive part of the iceberg is. And those are things like the relationship to time, um, how they feel about nature, how they feel about family, how they feel. You know, it's values, it's attitudes, it's behaviors that don't necessarily, they're not as easy to see as those more superficial markers of culture. So I think that when people go to another country, it's how far down the iceberg they go that determines maybe more so how they'll respond when they come back to their own country rather than how long they've been away, if that makes sense. It's the deeper you go, the harder it is. That's my theory. I don't know yet if I can say that that's the truth or not, but it's it's one factor in, in how you feel when you actually do move back home. So I don't think length of time... I mean, I've spoken to people who've been gone for six months and they're just devastated when they come back. Like, they just can't function because they've done such a great job of turning Japanese or whatever it is that they've done.
0: So that's my two cents on that. I wonder, too, if it's how much whatever culture you ended up living in resonated with you personally, like about the way you want to live in your life. I think that, too. I think cultural fit is a big part of it.
1: Also, what I'm starting to find out is that how much say you had in the decisions that's another factor and and what your repatriation is like whether it was your decision to move home or not having said that it was my decision to move home and look at the mess that I turned into so maybe it's it's just it's the, one of those things that the, you have to tease apart all the strands that contribute to your reentry and how you handle it and it's I think it's like mapping out the DNA code there's just too much that's interwoven it's too hard to to figure out what what is causing it and and what is just sort of correlating.
0: Have you talked to people who didn't have a say at all?
1: Yes, I've talked to people who were were kicked out of the country that they were in, and they were in no way ready to go. And the resentment and the grief is just beyond anything, quite understandably. Then you've got all the scary emotions that come into it too. So if you're evacuated from a country, or if you're... I was one of my respondents who had a visa issue and they were deported, with a couple of weeks notice and for her it was there was fear there was real fear then that changes everything right it's like the catalyst that changes everything when you've got fear in addition to the resentment and the sadness the grief whatever that makes everything much more fraught she didn't want to go and she was forced to go and she was forced to go quite quickly so there wasn't even time to get used to the idea and she had small children too so she's worried about her kids and how this is affecting them there's a lot of determining how you're going to re-enter, whether it's well or not so well.
0: What about magical thinking, so to speak, where you get to another country and even if you know you're going home, you start dreaming about, well, maybe I can figure out a way to (laughs) stay here or or maybe you just don't even understand the culture, but like how you've imagined it to be may not be the reality if you were to stay for 10 years. But is the reality that you've invented in your mind.
1: I don't, I, don't even, I don't even know how to wrap my head around that idea, though.
0: I mean, I know, I know
1: there are, you know, for example, we lived in Singapore for three years. And Singapore is a notoriously expensive country. And when you're there on an expat package, it's doable because the company pays for your condo and they pay for your car and they pay for your international school and they pay for all that. I know I have heard of people who have left Singapore and then have tried to come back on their own. And they find that it's really not, unless you're independently wealthy, it's really not doable. The reality isn't really quite matching what
0: their dream could be. But I, I don't, I don't know, other than that, that one stumps me a little bit. Or people who go back to visit that place and realize that it's not home anymore in that second visit.
1: Well, I did that. I, I did that, yeah. I, I went back to Singapore, oh, I'm going to say three years ago now. I went back for a couple of weeks, and on my first day there, I decided I was going to go and visit the house where I lived when we first moved to Singapore, and I got lost on the way there. And it was like, this is a sign from God, you know? It was like, if you get lost on the way home, is it really home? Think that through. I kind of realized that I was there as a tourist. I wasn't home anymore, and it was really healing for me to come to that realization there. And it was a big part of me understanding that the world had moved on, myself included. It helped me look back on my time in Singapore for what it was, which was a really fantastic episode in my life that lasted three years and that was wonderful in so many ways. But it's now over. And so I can revisit it in my mind and I can revisit those memories. But the thing is, you can go back to a place but you can never go back to a time. And part of what made my time there so great was the people that I knew when I was there. They've all moved on too. I would recommend to anybody who can, let a couple of years go and then go back and visit this place that was your home. Either it will still be your home and that's comforting in and of itself, or you'll realize that it's no longer your home and there's a a different kind of comfort that comes with that that ache that I had been living with for years was gone by the time that trip was over.
0: You can find a link to Maria Foley's blog. I was an expat wife, along with a link to the Wall Street Journal's expat blog. So you can read the article about repatriation blues at our website, thebittersweetlife.net. And there you can also see a lot of pictures by Caravaggio, if you want. Yes, we have a special love for Caravaggio, if you haven't noticed yet. You could also donate to keep the show going. You could also find a way to subscribe or write us with your questions and suggestions. I want to give a shout out to three people who donated last week. Shannon, Ted, and Gail. Thank you for taking the plunge and letting us know that you not only enjoy the show, but you want it to succeed (laughs) as far as uh, us not going into debt creating it. (laughs) And I really do appreciate that. Yeah, thank you so much. And I guess we'll leave it there because we're running along. So until next week. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. This is The Bittersweet Life. Join us again. We hope that we're bringing intellectual stimulation and good company to your lives, and that these conversations help you process your own travel experiences. If you value the show, if you value our company, please support it with a financial contribution. Your support is what keeps this show on the air, week after week. Find a link to donate on our webpage, thebittersweetlife.net. It's in the upper right-hand corner. If you prefer to send us a check, email us at mail.com and we'll send you an address. Be sure also to check out the Wall Street Journal's expat blog and Facebook group. Their great writing inspired this conversation. You'll find links to them at our website as well, thebittersweetlife.net. Keep exploring and stay in touch. Thank you.